Hello. This week we're looking at how English has spread around the world, and at its effect on other peoples and cultures. How, for example, did this extraordinary form of English emerge in West Africa? Now, who are the Siso? Namio. This is your eye. And I have me, my brother. What can I go do? You know, say walk plenty. No rest. No, no, nothing. Every time I do for walk. Now you go hide yourself. You don't see me now. What you get for tell me? Says you don't dry, sir. And I walk, as I tell you. For the answer, I went to Leeds University to meet Loretto Todd, an authority on world Englishes. Unfortunately, I neglected to brush up on my pigeon. Aha, na so na who dey? Aha, na Bill, my brother, how you dey? I'm very well, thank you. You must be Loretta Todd. Na so, how country, Bill? Uh, country fine. I very very well, thank you. Thank you plenty. Me too. A fine bad. Me a dey for Leeds. For which place you been come out this morning? I came to this morning from um, York. Who saw you to go today? Today, I'm, uh, then from here we go on to Leicester. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, me, I get for Shidong here for Leeds. I go stay here, sute, but I like I'm bad. <laughs> You're hungry, bad? Hungry to do you? Hungry, real bad, yes. Aha. Uh-huh. I think so, then we fit chop. No, be so? Chop sounds great. Okay. I think so, we go chop. That one fine? You go do? A pidgin is a rudimentary language that emerges when people from two different language groups come together, usually for purposes of trade or commerce. When contact between those two groups is prolonged, the pidgin will sometimes evolve into a more formalized tongue known as a creole. To the uninitiated, there is a tendency to regard both pidgins and creoles as rather comical, substandard languages. In fact, as Loretto Todd makes clear, they are, in their way, as sophisticated and expressive as any other language in the world, sometimes more so. The pidgin in various West African countries is very special in that it's a type of halfway house between their own culture and the European culture, if you like. They're using uh, English words and phrases, but it's expressing an African culture. But is the vocabulary, does the vocabulary tend to be universal throughout? In terms yes, of you've got a core vocabulary that would be universal. I mean, you've got things like um, the majority of verbs, come, go take, bring, uh, put, um, you've got a core vocabulary, you've got body parts, you've got numbers and so on. So you've got a lot of vocabulary that would be shared. Again, in different regions, you might get borrowings from different local languages. But since the pidgin was meant to be the language that allowed communication where previously none was possible, it's terribly important that it doesn't change too much. And what would be the point of having something that was meant to facilitate communication if it was no good to you once you left your own country? So in in fact you find that even words that are used differently from the way they're used in English um, are, are often common throughout the area. Shall I give you an example? Please. If you take an example like chop which can mean uh, food or eat um, uh, chop fine you know like bon appetit Eat well, chop fine. Uh, or, I know but chop no nothing. Uh, I haven't eaten anything. Um, take this chop, go. Take this food away. So you've got that word chop. And you would find that all the way from Gambia down to, uh, shall we say, Cameroon, with the same meaning. It can function as a noun. It can function as a verb. Uh, I mean, people don't go around saying, oh gosh, I'm going to use it as a verb now. But really, that's what 
it's doing. You say, chop them, chop them fine, you know, eat it. Or it can function as um, an adjective of sorts in the sense that if I say to you, eh, eh, you chop masa, na die, you eat a great deal, chop masa, chop master. You, 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 you're really eating well, then if you like, you could say that's functioning as an adjective. But it's the same word throughout the area. Can, can I ask you, what, what is the health of, of pigeons? Are they thriving? Or? They are. You, you, you see, one of the things that's intriguing is you might think that they would develop closer and closer and closer to English. And sometimes in vocabulary you would think that. But the basic language, which is unbelievably easy to learn, and I mean that. It's, you, for example, you take the verbs. There's only one form. You know how in English you have I walk, you walk, he was walking, he walked, that sort of thing. And it's even worse if you've got an irregular verb. Uh, but in, in the pigeons, you tend to have one form, waka. And that is for any form. The past is indicated by a little auxiliary. So you'd say, um, awaka, that's now I walk. If you want to indicate that you're going on, you're walking at this particular time, you'd say, adiwaka. If you want to say, I walked yesterday, abinwaka yesterday. I will walk, agowaka tomorrow. And in that sense, you only have to learn a relatively small vocabulary and you've got the same little auxiliaries, as it were, that can indicate all sorts of nuances of time and aspect. One of the best ways to il illustrate the subtlety and the effectiveness of pigeon is to quote a couple of proverbs for you. Because in these proverbs you get encapsulated wisdom. I mean, Chenoachevi once said that they were the palm wine with which words are eaten. And so you get little proverbs like, one hand no fit tie bundle. You cannot tie a parcel with one hand. You need cooperation. Or you get one like, dog elas na god declinam. And, and, and that really means that God uh, wipes the dog's backside. And initially you might think that's a relatively unpleasant one. But what it means is God helps those who cannot help themselves, which from my point of view is infinitely, that's a nicer God than the God who only helps those who helps themselves. My father, before my father getting wife of Boku, he no get equality palaver. He live well for he be a guy for his own house. But that time don't pass before white man come with his one wife for one man. There is a tendency among some people to smile at the quirky ways people from other language groups deal with English syntax or pronunciation. But as Dr. Todd points out, they are simply grafting an internal logic from their own languages onto English. In our restaurant, we serve basically curry, but uh, tandoori's, uh, as people are getting used to it, they're eating more and more. But at the uh, big restaurants or the more popular restaurants, they have started uh, on the menu to explain the dishes and which is making much easier for the customers. One of the things that people notice most about a quote-unquote Indian accent is again what linguists call retroflexion. In other words when you're speaking you turn the tongue round a little bit and so you would say things like what do you intend to do today and turning the tongue round you immediately 
just begin to sound that little bit Indian. I'm not trying to be insulting or anything. And, and that is part of an articulatory setting of the Indian languages. And so when that generation comes over to this country that was brought up speaking an Indian language, they will carry their retroflexion over into English. Yes, not only the retroflexion, but features like um, saying things like, um, "I am, um, I'm thinking about him all the time. I am listening. I am, I am uh, seeing him now." That sort of construction that we often think about, because the, their own languages permit them to use the progressive form with any verb, whereas in English we have limitations on it. But it's the same with another Indianism that we tend to think about: is someone will say, "I'm going to pictures." and they will not use the definite article. And, and you say to somebody, well, why don't you use the definite article? And then you think, how on earth? I would say I'm going to hospital, but I'm going to the pictures. English is incredible when you think about its use of definite and indefinite articles. And so either people will generalize and cut it out altogether, or they will follow the influence of their own language, where they, they may not have a particular um, article in their own languages. I mean, Irish, for example, doesn't have an indefinite article. It's nothing inferior about a language, it's just a fact. It is little wonder that people are sometimes tripped up by the intricacies of English. It is a remarkably complex language. Take a simple word like set. It has 58 separate meanings as a noun, 126 as a verb, and 10 as a participial adjective. It takes the Oxford English Dictionary 60,000 words, the length of a short novel, to define them all. Or consider phrasal verbs, that is, verb phrases that change meaning through the addition of a preposition, as in look up, look at, look over, and look round. Native speakers tend to take these for granted, but for anyone learning English, they can be extremely bewildering. Listen to Dr. John Wright discussing their mysteries with French, German, Spanish and Korean students in Bristol. Have a quick look at the phrasal verbs. Have we mentioned all of these or any of these? Like makeup has different meanings. You make yes, yourself up yes. before a party yes. and I just made up an example. Mm. And I'm sorry that uh, I insulted you yesterday. I'll make it up to you. Yes. And we're a bit late. We'll have to make up time different meanings. What is ketchup? Mm, good question. It's not the... Uh, Who's tomatoes? <laughs> no, nothing to do with tomato ketchup, no. Have you heard that, Sandra? When ketchup? you take a bus, right? when you get a, on a bus, you can use ketchup? No, we would say catch, but when you have the particle up, catch up, it creates another meaning, a different okay. meaning, which is one problem. That's catch, but not catch up again. Any more which are new here? How did you find that? Was that easy or difficult? Difficult. Right. And what makes phrasal verbs difficult for you? Uh, because uh, English, in English, there is lots of exception. And if I put another preposition after the verb, the meaning changes again. Can you think of an example like that? So if you say look as the basic verb. Uh, look up, look out, look for. Look after. Look after. The baby. Yeah. Look into a problem. Do you have anything similar in your language? No. So it's a special feature of English for yes. you. Okay. Yes. Any other problems with phrasal verbs? Do you find it difficult to understand if people use one? Oh, yes, of course. Why? Uh, first of all, it's difficult to understand everything that English people say. 
but uh, fragile verbs, it's difficult to use, so it's difficult to understand. Ayako Matsuo teaches Japanese studies at Manchester University. I asked her if it is difficult for the Japanese to learn English. Uh, the answer is mixed. <laughs> to start with, lots of people would like to speak English because it's not just、uh, you know, English language, but it's world language. So, particularly young people, it's also the language for music, arts, all sorts of things. So, they would like to learn, but they somehow think you know, learning English is wonderful but difficult. When you were learning English, were you? Struck by any particular difficulties, any, any quirks of the English language that threw you or, or、um, amused you? Or I find、um, English spelling is difficult because it's not like you don't spell like you pronounce.、Yeah. And I find lots of idioms is difficult, and still I'm struggling with prepositions, which prepositions to use. And passive forms, I find it difficult, and some tense. Yeah, lots of things. The more you know about English, you feel more, oh, it's difficult language. I feel like it's still a long way to master <laughs> English. And what about, was there anything that impressed you about English that you, you thought, this, 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 is, this, this is something in this foreign language that actually we don't have in our own, or, or it works better at doing certain things? Uh, English. I think it's also the variety. It, it, Japanese is a bit similar because we borrow lots of words and got into English, but English has a similar history. You learn some Latin words or you know, Greek words and French words, and these days Japanese words as well. So we think Japanese is quite a flexible language. You know, we can actually import some English words and we, we put it like tape recorder. You know, so,、um, so we thought it's flexible, but English probably also.、Uh, Bit of a flexible language, borrowing lots of words.、Mm-hmm. And, and conversely, have, have, have you found any, any deficiencies in English that you find that it's difficult to express? express <laughs> Pronunciation is difficult.、Um, like we, in Japanese, we don't have any L and R distinction, and my English sometimes causes lots of problems. <laughs> No fewer than 20,000 words of English origin are now comfortably ensconced in the Japanese language, though often with modifications that do not always make the source immediately evident. Productivity, for instance, became, and my apologies to any Japanese speakers for my pronunciation, puru daku chibichi. Elevator, meanwhile, became arabeta, beefsteak, bifuteki, salad, sarada, and cheese, chizu. Altogether, as much as 10% of Japanese vocabulary is thought to be based on Western words, most of them from English. Elsewhere, the march of English into other languages has been scarcely less profound. In Eastern Europe, the fall of communism and the emergence of a free market meant increased exposure to Western goods, but also to the language of capitalism. I asked Peter Kuhivchak from the Department of Translation Studies at Warwick University. What influences this had had on language in his native Poland? Well, the, the English has for a long time been an important language in Poland, but after 1989, it's become even more important, not only in Poland, but in other East European countries. People very soon realized that the way of communicating with the outside world and the way the, what me, success means learning English and being able to communicate in English. And to what extent is 
has English become the the language of commercial discourse? The pace of change is so fast that the language cannot catch up with it. So very often it's much easier to conduct the conversation in English using English vocabulary. The businessmen or the city people, they do, they, if you listen to them, you find out that 40% of the vocabulary they are using is English. I've got the magazine here. It's the, the, the magazine is the equivalent of, um, the Polish equivalent of, I don't know, the of the American Times, but it's the for, for the Poles. And if you look at advertisements, a lot of them are, a big part of them is in English. This one says, watch the world. And this is the advertisement of the, uh, for the Swiss uh, TSOT, what is. And a lot of these texts are in English. Now, what, what, it's, what it signifies means that English is the language of prestige, on one hand, that's you are in. But also the people who advertise, they know that this is the language of prestige and it goes with, it goes with upward movement, social movement. So people who can, who have English, they've got the access to better life. And it's true, and you've got better prospects. You earn more money. So um, it's a part of the economic phenomenon. And uh, as you drive around Poland, you'll be surprised how many shops, how many enterprises um, provide information in English, in the street, street signs. Mm -hmm. It's very little at the moment. There's really little concern of what happens to Polish if you do that? Somehow the Poles haven't got as many anxieties as the French have got. And there is no resistance to it. Then it, it, it does happen. We make it sound as if not only is there no resistance, but it's actually embraced. Yes, it is embraced, yes. Yes, it is embraced. Sometimes, however, there is a resistance to the incursions of English as the writer Marika Cobbold discovered when her novel Guppies for Tea was translated from English, in which it was written, into her native Swedish. Even the most common English expressions were ruled inadmissible. I had this argument with my publishers and the translator, and I said, surely everyone will understand this particular expression. But they said it's not only a matter of that, but it's a big debate going on, and, and reviewers and people, the guardian of the Swedish language, sort of, they hate it's getting in more and more into Swedish people are more and more using English words and translation, translators are leaving them in. So they are trying to stamp, clamp down on that, which is fair enough. To, to what extent <coughs> is that sort of infection from the English-speaking world a, a, a genuine concern? I mean, you know how the French mm -hmm. are exactly. often obsessed by anglicisms creeping into their language flooding into their language. Is that same thing happening in, in Sweden? And, and are people quite concerned about it? I think it's of concern, but not in any way in the same way as it is in France. I think people are just... It's an intellectual debate now, and people are, are guarding against it in translation works and when they write themselves. It's even for a Swede writing in Swedish, it seems to be easier sometimes to grab an expression in English. And that is what they're trying to stop happening. They're trying to make people use what we have in Swedish. Because, of course, the more you, you go to another language, the more you actually lose. You probably, if you'd really worked hard enough, would find a perfectly good expression in Swedish. But it's easier to grab that handy one in English. And, of course, by that you lose, you lose whole expressions in your own language. And they, they get out of usage and your language gets even poorer. Now, do you do your own translations? Have you done any of your own translations no. into Swedish? I had to step in and do a fairly radical rewrite on the first 
book that was translated into Swedish because it was a horror. In what way? <laughs> what well, sort of things did it have in it? It was a bit like um, what you call instructions to an electrical gadget. It was an approximation of what I had written. And then it was major howlers that would have been funny if it hadn't sort of broken my heart. Like I said, young people were uh, stepping up the housing ladder, which of course, to my mind, means that you are swapping from one, you know, you're buying a a more expensive house and then a more expensive house. And that was translated as all over the village, young people were clinging on to ladders outside their houses. (laughs) And I also had somebody blowing a raspberry, which was translated that the old admiral spat a raspberry across the room. (laughs) So the translator didn't actually come to you with any queries? No, I wish she had. She was new. And I, I, I now have a very, very fine translator. And she does a fantastic job, as much as you can when you're translating at all and translating from a wide language to a narrower language. She's doing a fantastic job, but that first one maybe should not have been translating. <laughs> as you will know if you've ever tried to assemble a toy or program a video recorder by following instructions written in Taipei or Canton, English in the wrong hands has a certain capacity for confusion. Here are some suitably inscrutable oriental instructions for putting together a barbecue set. Place the handle of the blunt side of the cricket chirps and fasten the clinch and put in the complete cricket crips. Attention, please always choose a place with a coal scuttle. Also, in no case the tool should be closed and over-accommodated. Please do not pour gas or gasoline liquid. For setting fur, use setting fur material such as setting for a paste and setting for a bolt. Well, that seems perfectly clear, doesn't it? There is no doubt that English has become the most global of languages, the lingua franca of international business, science, education, politics, and pop music. About 330 million people in the world speak English as a native language, as compared with 260 million for Spanish, 150 million for Portuguese, and a little over 100 million for French. No other language is spoken as an official tongue in more countries, 44, as against 27 for French and 20 for Spanish. And none is spoken over a wider area of the globe. Two-thirds of scientific papers, 70% of the world's mail, 90% of what is written on the Internet is in English. It is also the de facto language of international aviation. Hello, Milano. I for you. I'm from London to Fiumicino. Alitalia 305. Buonasera, Reda Contact. Proceda, Spear. Geneva, bonsoir from Alitalia 305. Alitalia 305. An Italian pilot flying an Italian plane into Italian airspace contacts Italian air traffic control, all speaking in English. But as I learned from retired commercial pilot John Cox, there is no guarantee that English will be the language of international air travel forever. Well, English is the language used by most international airlines, and it is a requirement that at all international airfields, the controllers there should be able to speak not only their own local language, but also English to communicate with international aircraft. 
but uh, we're not allowed to say English is the language of aviation, although in effect it really is. And uh, because of the some other countries feel that their uh, language should not be uh, discredited or disregarded. And so in the official documents of the International Civil Aviation Organization, it always uses this, this terminology. Um, English should be used pending the development and adoption of a more suitable form of expression for universal use. Um, there's no sign of that coming along yet, and I doubt <laughs> whether it ever will, but that satisfies the sensibilities of some people who speak other languages other than English. And would it be right to assume that's French? Speaking people I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, English, even for those of us who speak it as native tongues, it's, it's a language that has a lot of scope for ambiguity. How do you get around that when you're flying airliners and communicating with... Well, communicating with the air traffic control, we try to use standard phrases. If you want to say something out of the usual, that may be a problem, but uh, usually most of the communications are all in standard phraseology. One particular problem we did have, um, I've been connected with the transport of dangerous goods on aircraft, which can be done safely if it's done properly. And in the description of dangerous goods, we have problem with this word inflammable. And uh, even I have to think sometimes, does inflammable mean it's uh, going to burn or it doesn't burn? And to people whose English is not their native language, it can be very confusing. And they say, well, what does it mean? Is it going to burn or not going to burn? <laughs> and when you tell them that inflammable means it's going to burn, they find this sort of incredible and incomprehensible <laughs> that inflammable means the same as flammable. Right. So uh, we have tried to standardize on the word flammable, which does away with that ambiguity. Requiring pilots and air traffic controllers to communicate in a language other than their own would seem to be a recipe for confusion. I asked John Cox whether this was so. It certainly has been confusion in, uh, in some cases, um, and uh, I don't like to talk about individual cases, but obviously there have been confusion on t- in times of the communications between the air traffic control and um, the pilots, particularly where both the pilots and the air traffic controller are not native English speakers. And then you get a sort of double problem that they they don't quite understand each other. We've seen some recent accidents which appear to be due to this, although the final report, for instance, of the recent crash on the approach to Delhi has not been published yet. But uh, it would appear that there... Uh, one of the aircraft involved. One was descending, one was climbing out of Delhi, and one misunderstood which height he was cleared to. And so um, that's why they collided. They both ended up at the same height. And both of the pilots involved were non-native English speakers, and uh, they and the controller at Delhi would be speaking with an Indian accent anyway. And so one of the pilots had misunderstood which height he'd been cleared to. And uh, that was the reason those two aircraft collided. So clearly English needs to be handled with care. But whatever its shortcomings and scope for misunderstandings, there's little likelihood of the world's finding, as the phrase has it, a more suitable form of expression for international use. So English is bound to remain the world's preeminent language as we move into the 21st century. The question is, what kind of language will that be? And that is our subject for next week.